Welcome back, everyone, to part two of our episode on motor vehicle collisions on bread and butter emergency medicine. We're joined again with Dr. Liz Powell, this time to focus our discussion on CT scan and trauma, as well as disposition. Jumping ahead to CT scan. Yes. Kind of, that's, I think one of the, most people feel pretty comfortable ordering x-rays even sure. early in their career, sure. but that pulling the trigger of doing a CT scan, as sure. you mentioned, the pan scan is one where you're certainly going to be getting other people involved if that's something you're deciding on. Sure. Um, and just to go anatomically, CT sure. scan of the head in, in, in the motor vehicle collision, what are your thoughts in terms of when you need to get it or when you don't necessarily need to? Yeah, so there are actually that you can use. And I think that you'll develop your own comfort level with the various rules that Mm -hmm. you can use. Uh, But I would encourage you also to look these up on your own because what you want to do is when you go to your R4 to present these patients, you want to be able to say, hey, according to the X, Y, or Z rule, I should do a CAT scan of the head. So you've got your Canadian head CT rules. Mm -hmm. Um, Keep in mind, these are Canadians, so a little bit of a different patient population than what you're seeing in B-pod. That's true. Uh, but these are your patients. Um, they have certain inc- inc- inclusion criteria, including a GCS of 13 to 15, age greater than or equal to 16 years, which is going to be the majority of your patients anyway. Mm-hmm. So 16 is going to be our typical trauma cutoff, though you'll have a rather large 14-year-old that will sometimes slip through. Right. Uh, but I would argue if they're bigger than you are, you can probably safely <laughs> apply these rules uh, to them. Touche. Um, they can't have any coagulopathy, um, nor be on any anticoagulation. Remember how we talked about Coumadin? Right. Yeah. That's a different ballgame. And those, listen, those guys just get head CTs. Okay. I, I think that's a pretty safe yeah, cutoff. Yeah. yeah. Don't, don't overthink it. They get head CTs. <laughs> All right. You were in an accident. You get a CAT scan of your head. Okay. Yeah. Because me CAT scanning your head and finding nothing is much better than me not CAT scanning your head and you go home and continue to bleed with your INR of three. This All is right. true. Um, so you can't be on any anticoagulation. And then you, you also can't have any obvious open skull fracture because that would be kind of a hard indication to be able to, to do, it anyway. to do that yeah. anyway. Correct. Um, so for the Canadians, um, the head CT is not required if the patients don't meet any of these criteria. Okay. So they're, um, uh, they have to be less than 65, essentially. So if they're greater than or equal to 65 years old, you may want to consider getting a CAT scan okay. of their head. Okay, so we're talking that kind of 16 to 65 population for which this is applying. Okay. If they vomited greater than two times, they probably need a head CT. Mm-hmm. Um, if they have an open or depressed skull fracture, as we talked about earlier, they're going to need a head CT. Mm-hmm. If they have signs or symptoms suggestive of a basilar skull fracture, so that's your hemotympanum, your okay. blood behind the ears, your raccoon eyes. Um, if they have CSF leaking out of their nose probably an indication One that they would need a CAT scan of their head. Right. Um, if they have battle sign, which is bruising around kind of the mastoid area. Okay. Um, if they have a GCS less than 15 and they're greater than two hours out from their injury. Okay. So you may see your young patients come in a little bit stunned, a little bit post-concussive mm-hmm. afterwards, but they typically clear fairly quickly. Okay. If they're continuing not to clear two hours after, consider getting a head CT. Okay. Um, same deal with retrograde amnesia, greater than 30 minutes. Okay. Um, if the, the Canadians kind of hedge with a dangerous mechanism, but I would can consider that significant intrusion, significant damage, significant force, death in the car, 
severely injured person in the car. Mm-hmm. Thinks about th- those bad uh, those bad mechanisms. Kind of the same thought, like too, with doing the fast exam as well that you had mentioned Correct. before, too. Okay. Correct. It's your pre-test probability. Mm-hmm. I think that's a perfect way to explain it. Uh, your pedestrian. If if you were a pedestrian that was struck by a vehicle, okay, you may need a CAT scan of your head. Mm-hmm. If you were ejected from a motor vehicle, you will probably need a CAT scan of your head in addition to some other things. Mm-hmm. Um, if you fell from greater than three feet or five stairs, you may need a CAT scan of your head. They also have the New Orleans rule. So down in Louisiana, they came up with their own rule. These are also folks greater than 18 with a GCS of 15. Uh, blunt head trauma um, occurring within the last 24 hours, causing loss of consciousness, amnesia, or disorientation. Okay. So head CT is not required if they don't have any of the following. Um, so if they have a headache and vomiting, they may need a CAT scan of the brain. Okay. And they, they, unlike the Canadians, they don't say greater than two times. Okay. Um, if they're, this, they use 60 as their age cutoff instead of 65. Okay. Drug or alcohol intoxication. Um, so if you're a chronic drinker, you may be at increased risk of bleeding anyway. Mm-hmm. And then this is actually a really great point. You may have an intoxicated patient that comes in and someone just says to you, well, they're just drunk. Mm-hmm. They're acting belligerent. You can't examine them. That is a patient that needs a CAT scan of their brain because I want you to think of they're just drunk as a diagnosis of exclusion. Right. So yeah. you have to prove to me that they're not hypoglycemic, hypoxic, in shock, and have a significant head injury. Right. Okay. Yeah. All of those things have to be proven before we can say they are just drunk. Okay. Yeah. Um, if they have persistent anti-grade amnesia, um, if they have visible trauma above the clavicles, if they've had a seizure, um, they may need a CAT scan of their brain. Okay. And then Nexus, um, in addition to their cervical spine rule, which I'm assuming you'll probably want to chat about in a second, also came up with their own rule, which is fairly similar. And I think a lot of this is kind of common sense stuff Mm -hmm. that you would think about in your own as well. So they use 65 as their cutoff. Obviously, evidence of skull fracture, hematoma, neurologic deficit, altered level of consciousness, abnormal behavior or coagulopathy. Um, and vomiting as well. So fairly similar rules. And I think if you can just take away those big points, coagulopathy, altered mental status, significant trauma, vomiting, think about those types of things. And then obviously your your older patients as well, even in the absence of those things with some type of head trauma may still need a CAT scan. Right. right. And I think that's a really good point that you make that as time goes on, you get a bit more experience with these types of patients, you don't really find, I don't know if everyone's the same way, but one particular rule adhering to strictly seems to kind of leave out one part of the other. They all have points that are useful and you see some common things between them. And as you mentioned, those uh, separate points that in general, if they have this constellation of things going on, generally they're going to need a head CT scan. Correct. Um, so that's a good point. Now you referenced it as well regarding kind of moving on down towards the spine. Mm-hmm. Cervical spine becomes a big point of discussion, yes. Yes. thoracic and lumbar notwithstanding, but I think the C-spine is the one that most generally people are wondering about. What are your thoughts regarding needs for a CT scan in, those, in that anatomic location? Sure. So there are a couple of rules as well. We can start talking about the rules, and then if you'd like, we can go a little bit more into the clearance of the cervical spine yeah, as well. Yeah, certainly. That would be helpful. But I would also encourage um, folks listening to this that if absolutely go in with the R4, to learn how to clear a cervical spine, but mm-hmm. I would encourage you not to necessarily do it by yourself the first couple of times until you've gotten a comfort level because you have to examine a lot of patients in order to kind of get the comfort level with this. So, but go in with the R4. Don't just, don't just let your R4 go in there and clear a cervical spine because mm-hmm. I think this is actually important Right. Um, for our internal medicine colleagues. You know, someday you may be examining a post motor vehicle collision in your office from a couple of days ago 
Um, you know, I think this has a, a wide kind of range of applicability right. to folks in being yeah. able to examine a cervical spine and understanding who needs imaging and who doesn't. I think it's actually really important. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Canadians are back and better than ever with their cervical spine <laughs> rule. Uh, they use it for patients that are alert, stable, trauma patients with a GCS of 15. So they are not altered. Okay. Um, they ha- Patients that are greater than 65 with obviously extremity paresthesias or some other type of focal neurologic deficit and or quote-unquote dangerous mechanism, which the Canadians define dangerous mechanism as a fall greater than three feet or five stairs. Some of our patients just call that a Tuesday. But to the in, <laughs> that's true. But to the Canadian, Canada, that yes. is that is very dangerous. Um, an axial load, so an axial load head injury, mm-hmm. a high speed motor vehicle collision. Think about your kind of forty to forty five miles an hour and up is where you really start to see those G forces we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Your rollovers, your ejections. Um, they are big bicyclists up there, so your you know bike on bike collisions. Um, bike on be, bike. Bike I... on bike. Bike on car. Bike on pedestrian, uh, you want to be thinking about that. And then they also list motorized recreational vehicle. Oh. I consider that here in the United States to be your ATVs, your motorcycles, your motorbikes, those types of things. Would a Segway fall under that category as well, I would imagine? It just I would depends imagine. on the speed, I guess. Yeah I, yeah, I actually don't know what a top speed of a Segway is, but uh, I'm sure that they have their own motorized vehicles there as I would, well. I would imagine, yeah. um, Snowmobiling, okay. I guess, as well, could be included. Um, so just kind of things to think about for the Canadians and their rule. Um, Nexus also came up with their... Um, own rule as well, um, which I would say I probably use a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so the focal neurologic deficits, the midline spinal tenderness, okay. um, altered level of consciousness, intoxication or distracting injury. So if they've got an open ankle fracture, you're going to be reducing. That is not someone you can go up and try to clear their cervical collar. You've got to leave the cervical collar in place until the other injuries are dealt with, and mm-hmm. then you can go back. Okay. So if your patient does not completely meet all of those criteria, they're going to need cervical spine imaging. Now, here's what I would emphasize to you, and here's what the trauma folks will tell you. So the cervical spine imaging looks at the bones. So you'll be able to tell them they don't have any broken bones. What it does not tell you about is a ligamentous instability. Mm -hmm. Now, our CAT scans have gotten so good that the likelihood of missing one of these injuries is is probably very, very, very low. But I say this because what you need to do is you need to go, if if they do not fall into these criteria, being able to be clinically cleared, Mm -hmm. which is what these rules do. You need to go back in and re-examine them after they get their CAT scan because mm-hmm. this will happen to you. You can book this. You can put money on it. You'll get your CAT scan of your cervical spine because they've got a distracting injury or they were intoxicated and you can't clear them. Right. They get their imaging. The imaging will come back as no fracture and you'll have someone come up to you and ask you if they could just take their collar off. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately for you, the answer is no. I need to go back and re-examine them. So you need to go back, re-examine them. Make sure that you, you know, you've treated them with your anti-inflammatories or your muscle relaxants. Now they're having no more midline neck tenderness. They've got no distracting injury anymore because you took care of it. They're no longer intoxicated. Now I can re-examine that patient. Okay. They continue to have no focal neurologic deficits, no midline tenderness, full range of motion of their neck with no evidence of focal neurologic deficits, paresthesias with movement. Mm-hmm. Then that is a patient that you can clear their cervical collar. Okay. If they do not meet those criteria, they would need one of three things really to happen. They either, A, get discharged with a cervical collar in place and follow up with trauma. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming they follow up with trauma here. They follow up with trauma. Right, yeah. It's, yeah. Or it, yeah. their primary or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, they get a flexion extension view, which mm-hmm. if you get an adequate flexion and extension view, more power to you. 
Um, <laughs> or they need an MRI of their cervical spine. So right. what you'll see a fair amount is in the intubated true trauma patients um, that we obviously can't clear them clinically. When they go up to the SICU, oftentimes if they're going to be intubated for a prolonged period of time, they'll end up getting an MRI of their cervical spine to be able to clear the ligamentous instability. Right, okay. Um, you may also, on the topic of flex sex, you will likely have one of the radiology techs come over to ask you to go over with them because mm-hmm. they will not just take off the collar on their own. That's true. Yeah, um, I've noticed that they do have a, at least have to have a provider be doing that correct. for, I'm assuming, liability issues correct. too. Yeah. And what you are, the, the key to the flexion extension view is you do not force their neck into any position that they do not want to put. That is how you pith a, per, a patient, okay? It's poor form. Poor it is, form it is poor form, yes. Do not put their neck, do not put their head and neck in a position that they do not want to be in. Bend, so, just bend. What you're going to have them do is flex as far as they can and extend as far as they can. Okay. And your goal is to get imaging. I believe it's greater than 30 degrees on either end, and okay. you have to see the top of T1 um, to make it an adequate flexion extension view. Okay. The theory behind this is, number one, if they have a ligamentous instability that is going to cause them to become paralyzed, they are not going to be able to flex and extend. Okay. That is why you don't want to move them. And number Forcibly. two is you are going to be able to see the bones line up in an adequate manner in okay. the flexion extension view. Uh, they Sometimes, especially in our larger patients, it can be very difficult to get an adequate flexion and extension view. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes, if you have a high enough suspicion, it is worth doing. Okay. So these these are things that take time and practice. And I would encourage you to talk to your R4, talk to your attending about these, because we can certainly walk you through the steps. But I would say if, you just, if you're just waking up from you know, your cup of coffee and joining this conversation... If you have a negative cervical spine CAT scan and someone walks up to you and asks you if they can just take the collar off, Mm -hmm. the answer is no. Gotcha. And then go from there. Right. Extending down through the rest of the body then. I think in general, the next question that often people have is, what about the CT scan of the chest, abdomen, pelvis? Sure. Or the boxes, some people might refer to it too, is um, when are those uh, images indicated in your mind? When do you you feel impressed to get a CT scan of that area? Sure. So I would say age certainly comes into play. Mm Mm-hmm. Complaint, physical exam findings. So if they have a big seatbelt mark across their abdomen, they're likely not only getting a fast exam from me, they're getting a CAT scan of their abdomen and pelvis. And mm-hmm. you may be asking yourself now, why just ultrasound them? I didn't see any fluid. Why do I then have to go on and do the CAT scan? Mm-hmm. Which I think is a great question. Just keep in mind the limitations of your fast exam. So it's bad for bowel injury. Mm-hmm. It's bad for retroperitoneal injury. Mm -hmm. And you can still have small, solid organ injuries that you just don't have enough blood yet to be able to pick up on your FAST exam. Right. So the FAST exam is a great screening tool, but if your suspicion is high enough for intra-abdominal injury, they've got to get that CAT scan in the belly. Right. A good rule in, but not necessarily rule out if you're concerned. Correct. Okay. I would also say, especially for the chest, if if, if I have done a chest x-ray, and I either have evidence of a hemothorax, pneumothorax, scapular fracture, first rib fracture, multiple rib fractures, especially in an elderly patient, which carries significant morbidity and mortality. Mm-hmm. Those folks are getting a CAT scan of the chest as well. Okay. First rib fractures and scapular fractures, though you can have those injuries in isolation, those are significant mechanism injuries. That takes mm-hmm. a lot of force to break your scapula. It takes a lot of force to break your first rib. So if you're seeing those on plane films, those folks are almost universally getting a CAT scan for me because they can have missed aortic injuries, missed other arterial injuries okay. um, that you want to be able to screen for appropriately. Okay. 
Shifting gears a bit. All right. We've been talking with regards to, I think, the biggest decision points that happen a lot in these patients. But another intern also comes up regarding therapy. Patients who have been in a motor vehicle collision are often in pain. Get a bone sticking out of your arm. All right, let me just sit here a minute. And sure. the question as to what can you do to try to alleviate that pain, particularly early on, before sure. you even know what's going on. Sure. Um, do you have any particular go-to medications or situations where you find certain medicines are either a good one to choose or any that might be dangerous? Sure. So I've been told that home dilaudid PCAs is not reasonable to do with this institution. <laughs> no. Is that is that correct? You is know, that yeah, we could try to make yeah. a change yeah. if, if that's something we want yeah. to start doing. I usually like to start them on a basal rate. No. Right. Um, so I, I'll be honest with you. I really try to avoid narcotics in these folks when I can mm-hmm. in the setting of musculoskeletal injury. Right. Now, if they, if they've got a, big ankle fracture or, you know, some other reason that I have found to start them on a short course of narcotics. That's one thing. But Mm -hmm. the vast majority of these guys that you're going to see in B-Pod are going to be musculoskeletal injuries Mm -hmm. with no fractures, no bleeding, Mm -hmm. nothing along those lines. So what I typically, I try to stay away from the narcotics. We all know that narcotics, even in short bursts, are highly addictive, especially your Percocets. Mm -hmm. So that is kind of a last resort for me, okay. I would say, when I'm sending these guys home. So they've gotten all their imaging. Everything looks great. I'm mm-hmm. sending them home. I really try to stay away from the narcotics. Okay. And I I have a, sometimes you just have to have an honest discussion with people. Right. And the fact of the matter is we probably cause a lot of people to become addicted to these medications, even with a week's worth or five days worth. So mm-hmm. try to stay away from the narcotics if you can. Now, once again, if there's a reason to, do it. Right. But it is not my go-to. Not everyone that was in a car accident and has a cervical strain gets sent home with narcotics. Mm-hmm. Okay. I find the anti-inflammatories to be my first line. Okay. Your extra strength Motrins, ibuprofens, and sometimes you can even give them some Toradol here, which I think is a great drug. Mm-hmm. So with your anti-inflammatories, here's what I tell people. You're going to hurt more tomorrow than you're going to hurt today. Okay. Okay. The adrenaline has now worn off. And they're starting to feel the low back pain and the upper back pain and the side pain and things like that. You want to give them stricter term precautions, obviously. Mm. But most of this is going to be musculoskeletal aching. So what I tell them is take a standing dose of ibuprofen every six to eight hours for the first 24 to 48 hours after your injury. Mm -hmm. Because the last thing you want them to do is not take anything for 24 hours because they've got the adrenaline kicking up. They wake up the next morning and they just can't move because they're so stiff. They're going to end up back in the emergency department and somebody else is going to be seeing them Mm -hmm. again. So I would say anti-inflammatory is definitely first line. My second line, especially for my cervical strains, um, would be muscle relaxation medications. Okay. Uh, I think Flexeril is fantastic. I threw out my back a few years ago and took a Flexeril. First of all, I was unconscious for like eight hours. <laughs> but uh, but I, I there will be some debate about what type of muscle relaxant works best. Some mm-hmm. people like to go the benzos like Valium. Unless somebody is just really, really hurting, I really try to, for the same reason I try to stay away from the narcotics, I try to stay away from the benzos as first line. Mm -hmm. Now, if you want to give somebody a dose while they're in the emergency department, help loosen them up a little bit, totally fine with that. But we're talking about going home with medicines now. Mm -hmm. I typically do the Motrin Flexeril approach. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of my standard uh, cocktail for guys going home. Right. And I think that's that's a good approach to have. And especially like you're describing the expectation management that goes into this. Because so often I've had patients that when you tell them they will be getting ibuprofen, which, I mean, frankly, these are over-the-counter medications just in stronger doses Mm -hmm. than they do in that setting. Um, Patients generally aren't thrilled with the prospect. They think, why am I not getting something more? And I think explaining to them not only if this is putting out the fire, not turning off the smoke alarm, it's the right indicated medicine for this, but also 
giving them that in, uh, that education about using it as a standing medication to help prevent future aches and pains with that too is, is a helpful thing, especially with them knowing life's pain, it's going to hurt. And if they know it's going to hurt, then I think that helps at least for these people right. to understand that that's... Definitely manage their expectations because I can tell you if you don't, they will be back in the emergency department the mm-hmm. next day. Right. You can you can book that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I would also say when you're sending someone home on FlexRail, you do need to tell them they need to be careful with driving operating heavy machinery, Mm-mm. things along those lines, because it is a sedating medication. Some of us apparently more than others, but it is a <laughs> eight sedating. hours. Worth. Yeah. Yeah. I wake up eight hours later and have the best sleep of my life. You know, it can um, be a, that can be a benefit too. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so you just really want to make sure that they are aware of that uh, because they may do a job where they're working construction or something along those lines. And you don't mm-hmm. want them taking a bunch of flex roll before they're going to work. Good point. So. Good point. So there's a lot to discuss and a lot that we've been able to go through regarding the initial management of these patients. And I think one of the final questions, the one that often if you're early in your career as a provider in the ED that will be asked of you by people who are supervising is, what's the dispo in terms of where does this person need to go? And if someone's going to be admitted for trauma, often mm-hmm. it's it's more readily apparent sometimes. Sure. And I think the question and one that we can help hammer down is, what criteria does a patient need to meet in your mind to be safe to go home after sure. a car accident? You know, I think it's a really great question. So broad categories I think of is, what were their injuries to mm-hmm. Is this a musculoskeletal strain? Do they have bilateral tib-fib fractures? Mm-hmm. You know, bilateral tib-fib fractures isn't going to be able to go home. Musculoskeletal strain can go home. Can they get up and walk? We call it the road test around B-Pod. Mm-hmm. So can they get up? Can they walk? Can they maneuver well enough? You're going to be sore, but can you maneuver well enough to be safe at home? You're not going to go home and fall. Mm-hmm. What is their age? So an 85-year-old with one rib fracture is different than a 25-year-old with one rib fracture. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about pain control and rib fractures and incentive spirometry and things like that when you're in the pod. Mm -hmm. But there will be some specific parameters with those things. But I would say an 85-year-old with a rib fracture is different than a 25-year-old with a rib fracture. A 25-year-old with an isolated rib fracture is going home. Mm -hmm. The 85-year-old may need to be admitted because they're going to be at increased risk of splinting and pneumonia. So certainly your age comes into play. Can they eat something without vomiting? Especially in your closed head injury patients, you really want to do some type of PO challenge for them. Mm-hmm. Whether it's the famed, authentic ED turkey sandwich, some crackers, uh, some ginger ale, you just need to make sure that those guys can eat before they go home. What type of living environment are they going back to? So okay. do they live on the 15th floor of a high-rise complex where they have to walk up the stairs? Think about that specifically in your older patients. The vast majority of your younger patients, honestly, are going to be able to go home. Unless mm-hmm. they have a significant bilateral lower extremity injury, pneumothorax, hemothorax, I, what I'd really like to think you to think about is kind of the older patient population. Okay. Do they have to move up and down stairs? Can they move up and down stairs, or do they need a physical therapy evaluation? Okay. With your head injury patients, are they clearing? So are they still kind of loopy, still looking concussed? And do they need? We do cognitive evaluations now. Mm-hmm. Are they going to need to be coming in for that versus going home and following up as an outpatient? And then most importantly, are they going to fall when they get home mm, is really okay. how I think about these guys. So, you know, you may have somebody with an isolated tibial plateau fracture, but they've had a stroke in the past and can't use their other side mm-hmm. and can't walk on crutches or wheel around on one of those little scooters. They may, may need to come into PTUT. It has happened. I only bring that up because it has happened. 
It was actually a lazy river fall um, at Kings Island. Oh, geez. So, so those are kind of the things that, that I think about. Most of your younger patients will be able to go home. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, where you really want to be thinking about a lot of the stuff is in your older patients. Get them up, walk them, have them eat. These aren't people you want to just kick out the door until they have proved that they can do those things for you. It's, it's important, and I agree with you completely. The functional status comes into play so much with an elderly patient. I, and I've been guilty of this, too, of thinking often my assessment is, well, if I had the same injury, would I be okay? And sure, that applies for people of my age that I'm assessing. But as a 75-year-old man, I'm probably not going to be able to crawl up the stairs or you know do those other things that younger people can get away with. Not that I'm saying we should make people crawl upstairs to go home. But still, you know, it's... Just it, it's so easy to forget really how hard life can be when you're older and not as strong. Right. And um, remember that these guys, if they've gotten imaging, have probably been laying in a bed, potentially flat in a bed for several hours. Mm-hmm. So this may be a 20 to 30 minute mobilization process mm-hmm. to get them back up because they're going to be even more sore from laying in an ED stretcher for several hours. Right. So what I'll typically do is when I go in and to give them the good news, clear their cervical collar, I'll start by sitting them up. Mm-hmm. especially if they've been flat. And I said, sit up here for five minutes because inevitably what happens is if they've been laying flat for three hours and then they try to stand up immediately, they get lightheaded and then you have to deal with that. Right. Sit them up, get them something to eat, get them moving mm-hmm. and then get them up walking around, walk into the restroom. Mm-hmm. And then once they've met those goals, then they can go. Home. Then they're okay to go. All right. Well, Dr. Powell, we thank you again for this good in-depth discussion regarding the patient that presents the B-Pod after a motor vehicle collision. Do you have any last words of advice for our listeners about this chief complaint or about life in general? Uh, no, you know, I'm just excited to see everybody in B-Pod. This is, this is a, these are things that you will get calls about in your outpatient practice um, for our, you know, OB and neurology folks. You know, you guys will be you will be dealing with this, not necessarily as much as, as we do in the emergency department, but I think take the opportunity to, to pick up these patients and, and examine them because what's, what is going to help you most is examining these patients, mm-hmm. getting a feel for what's actually broken, what's not, when I do CAT scans, when I don't need to, how I clear a cervical collar. Mm-hmm. Get that feel because those will be useful things for just about everybody to some degree moving forward. Well, thanks again, and yes, thank you all for joining us. We'll see you next time.